Hi, I'm Martine Powers, host of Post Reports, a new daily podcast from The Washington Post with the news, insights, and storytelling that you've come to expect from our newsroom. Stay tuned later in this podcast to hear about our show or check it out now at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and welcome to Cape Up. A year ago, Doug Jones became the first Democrat elected to the Senate from Alabama in 25 years. And what a year it's been. We talk about his Republican opponent. Roy Moore was a flawed candidate that became more flawed, if that's possible. The Mueller investigation. This has never been a witch hunt. And Trump's odd fascination with tariffs. Tariffs are taxes. Hear the rest of our conversation right now. Senator Doug Jones of Alabama, thank you very much for being on the podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So a year ago tomorrow, tomorrow because by the time this is published, it will be a, a year since you became the first Democrat elected to the Senate from Alabama in what, 21 years? Well, it would have been 25. 25 actually, years. Since the, first, the last election was in 1992. Ah, so in 25 years. So is it what you thought it would be and more? Yes and no. I mean, I, you know, look, I have been a, a follower of the Senate for a long time. I started my career in the Senate with uh, the late Howell Heflin from Alabama. Been involved in a lot of uh, senators' campaigns who would come through and do some things. And I follow the Senate more than I do just about anything. So, I, you know, I've seen the dysfunction. I've seen the dueling press conferences, but I've also seen how people get along. So in that respect, the Senate has been, I think, uh, exactly what I expect it to be. But I think importantly, we've also seen some changes that I th- think my race and my uh, being seated as a senator brought. I think we've seen a little bit more bipartisanship. We've really? seen, uh, oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, you just oh. don't, you don't, you really don't see it in, as I say, the dueling press conferences. But if you look at the legislation that's been introduced this year, you'll see an incredible amount of bipartisan legislation. Most of it's not getting to the floor because of other reasons. That's, you know, I have nothing to do with that. But it it, it at least sends a good message that there are people working together and behind the scenes, the staffs are are working together. It got fairly raw during the Kavanaugh vote. Oh, yeah, I bet. But overall, I think it's been very good. Uh, people have been good to me. So it's, you know, overall, the Senate has been what I expected it to be. But it, clearly, Washington, D.C., as a as a functioning government is a lot different than what I was used to in 1979 and 1980 when I was here. Well, I mean, as you heard, I was surprised to hear you say that you've seen more bipartisanship, which, you know, I mean, sure, There are Democrats and Republicans who co-sponsor legislation all the time. But, you know, yes, there are the dueling press conferences. um, But there's also just the the rhetoric that's thrown around on television uh, before the microphones. And so, I mean, the conventional wisdom is the Senate has fallen prey to the partisanship of of the House because a lot of folks from the House in the Gingrich years and since then have come over to the Senate. Do you not see that? No, no, no. I, I didn't say that I don't see any of that. Obviously, that exists, and it exists more than it should right now, for, for sure. But I think um, what, what really goes on in the work of the Senate is not that media sniping. And, and so much of what you see is not senators sniping at each other, but you've got the administration and they're pushing back on the administration or they're defending the administration. And at the end of the day, it's really more between the executive branch and the Senate that you see that breakdown. What I think is unfortunate is that the Kavanaugh nomination seemed to have set the tone for the year. And that showed the, the, the polarization on a very public and raw display. And it really devolved into um, partisan bickering uh, that I think was very unfortunate. But I don't think that that was necessarily the entire um, that we lost a lot of goodwill. 
that we're trying to make up for now. So it's not that the polarization doesn't exist and not that the bickering doesn't exist at all, but there's been a lot more work. If you look at, the, look at how our budget process in the Senate has worked this year with Senator Shelby and Senator Leahy. Look at the opioid bill. Look at some of those things, the banking bill. Those are issues where things worked pretty well, uh, and you're able to get past that. So uh, I'm glad you brought up actual legislation because, you know, I want to know, what were you actually able to get done in this in this first year? Well, you. Me. Yeah. Okay. Well, there's a couple of things. First of all, we were able to secure uh, a 14 percent increase in funding for HBCUs. Historically black colleges and, and universities. And, and, uh, who have not seen an increase in funding for five or six years. Uh, we led the efforts, uh, my office and Senator Harris, California led the efforts to, to do that. We've got some things pending in the farm bill uh, that were, are very important, creating rural liaisons, uh, health care liaisons to try to streamline the federal government's response to the rural health care crisis. We've got things that are in that farm bill that I think is going to pass. So those be, just being included in the farm bill that has passed the Senate uh, is an important step. We had things in the uh, uh, banking bill, aside from the deregulations that we had with community banks, which was a big compromise. We had some things in there about credit for those who are generally unserved in their credit markets, uh, low income, people of color, trying to do some things to change the way their credit score uh, is calculated to give them more credit, to give people uh, separately uh, access, small businesses in rural communities, access to uh, uh, loans. There's a number of those things. You know, it's, it's one of those things that there's not this giant piece of legislation. The way the Senate operates now is you put these bills in, and sooner or later, if you work it the right way, they get folded into a bigger bill. That's what happened. I'm really proud of one thing in the opioid bill that I got put in with Senator Kane and Senator Young, and that is some workforce development and training. So many of the times where people have a, uh, a, an addiction issue and a crisis, they lose their jobs, they get out of the job market. In the opioid bill, we put in a provision that will get some funding and some retraining. That's going to be a big deal for those folks who got out of the job market because of that. So we have been incredibly busy, Jonathan, with a lot of number, a lot of things. The minute I got up here on January 3rd, we just put our heads down and got to work. You know, um, you mentioned before that, you know, some things haven't happened, but that doesn't involve you. You have no control over that. Well, that's Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. Um, He's an impediment to getting real things done, isn't he? Well, I'm not going to say that he's impediment, but he controls the flow. I mean, you know, I think every majority leader, whether it's Senator McConnell, Senator, Senator Reid, whoever is the gatekeeper of the legislation is going to be called an obstructionist by those people who want certain things on the floor and can't get them. I mean, there's obstruction and then there's obstruction. I understand that. And there are a number of things that I think should should come to the floor. Uh, right now, we're in the middle of, of uh, discussions about criminal justice reform. Right. Something we I was involved in in the private sector for a number of years. Uh, the president has... Um, signaled a, a, a support for that bill. It's a very bipartisan bill at this point. I can't understand why Senator McConnell won't put it on the floor, says that we don't have time. Hell, we've got time. You know, I mean, it just doesn't take anything to say, let's have two quick votes on this because it'll pass with flying colors. And it's, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but sources are telling me that this has overwhelming support. Oh, yeah. In the uh, Senate. I don't think there's any north question. Of six, north of 60 votes. When, when, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Well north of 60 votes. When you Look, when you have a, a criminal justice bill that is being pushed by Senator Grassley on the one hand, Senator Durbin on the other, Senator Booker, myself, and others, that's a very bipartisan bill mm-hmm. that's going to get an incredible amount of support. Plus, you've got now, the for Republicans, you've got the cover of the President of the United States who has publicly in a press conference said, this bill needs to pass. I need to sign this bill. So I'm a little confused as to why that bill is not coming up. Maybe it's being held for leverage on some other things. I don't know. Um, So the president, one of the things the president is big on, it's 
tariffs and how tariffs are, you know, the way to go for the United States to, you know, take it to its the people who've been ripping us off from his perspective. Right. Have the tariffs impacted uh, Alabama sure. in any way? Sure, they have, uh, for sure. Uh, what, what's really interesting about the president's really in favor of tariffs, the s- subtitle to that is basically I'm in favor of taxes because tariffs are taxes. And the president or anyone in his party refuses to say I'm for taxes, but that's exactly what these tariffs are. And w- I think we're having an impact in Alabama. We had a had a hearing recently, a roundtable discussion in Mobile. The auto workers, uh, the automobile manufacturers are concerned because they're being threatened with tariffs for national security reasons, which makes no sense whatsoever. They are trying to figure out how to plan for that. They don't know if they're going to come into effect or not. They know they're being used for leverage for other things. Steel and aluminum have been a good news, bad news uh, for folks like in Alabama. It's good news because we still have some steel industry uh, in Alabama. U.S. Steel is still there, Nucor, a few others. And they have done well uh, with these new taxes, Uh, these (laughs) new tariffs. (laughs) Same thing, as you just said. Same thing. Um, and, and they're being able to expand some things. You know, I, I, I grew up in Fairfield, which was a huge steel mill uh, making facility that went from 22, 23,000 people down to less than 1,000. They're looking to expand, put in a new electric arc furnace now, uh, get some more jobs in there, which is all great. On the other hand, people that use that steel and aluminum, their products are going up because the cost is going up. Uh, we've got the state docks who is seeing... Uh, they're trying to expand. Well, the cost of expansion of these plants is going up because it takes steel. That's one issue that we've got. That's good good news, bad news. Our farmers have been hurting. I've been making the rounds with some of the farmers in Alabama. The retaliatory tariffs that China has has placed on folks has really hurt soybean farmers, poultry farmers, uh, and they're afraid of losing markets. Now, everyone supports the president's goal of a better deal. Everybody would like to see a better deal. The problem we've seen is we've seen an incoherent strategy on how to get there. And everybody says, hang on with me, we'll get there. Well, if they don't get there soon, we're going to lose a lot of markets. I was going to ask you, do Alabamians blame the president for the, the uh, uh, Alabamians by that? I mean, the farmers you're talking to, do they blame the president for the financial straits that they're that they find themselves in well well, i think right now blame is a very harsh word it's a strong word but they are seeing certainly his policies and right now that are in effect having a cause and effect of their lower profits their razor thin margins anyway if they start to go under that's going to affect so many things it affects the banks who are supporting those farmers. Oh, right. You know, you've got transportation that's going to be affected. Once it really starts to set home, then I think they will start to put a little bit more of a blame game on. But it's not there yet. And hopefully we may see some churn- turnaround. I was going to say not there yet. Is there a light at the end of the tunnel well, when, it comes to these, when it comes to these tariffs? Well, we were hoping we would see that light uh, with the negotiations that uh, the president had with the leader of China this week. And there was a flicker of that light. You know, putting a hold on additional tariffs was a flicker of the light. Now we see that, well, maybe that flicker was just a mirage. Mm-hmm. You know, it was just one of those tweets that go out that are, are really don't have a lot of basis in fact and are just there to make people feel good. We'll see how that goes. Mm-hmm. I mean, certainly... It, the biggest concern, I think, are farmers. They are, they don't like the bailouts. They, they, you know, they've had to accept them, but they don't like that. Farmers don't want a bailout. They want the markets. They've spent years building up the markets in China and Mexico, Canada, and other places. Those markets, especially the Chinese markets, are going to go away if this doesn't go away soon. They're, those Those markets won't come back because China is spending so much money around the world in infrastructure, making it easier to get soybeans out of Brazil, mm-hmm. to get corn, to get poultry, you name it. And if we're not careful, 
our soybean farmers and others who have spent so much time and invested so much in these markets are going to see those dry up. And that is the part of this conversation about about these about these tariffs that I don't think gets enough attention. That okay, fine, Mr. President, you're sticking it to China, but China is a behemoth and can go elsewhere yeah. for for the markets. They don't need the United well, I mean, States. I mean, look for for every time you stick it to China, we get stuck back. I mean, it is you know. You call it what you want to. You can call it a game of chicken, you know, or you can call it a, 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 a game of poker because every time we play a hand, they raise it. Uh, every time they play a hand, we raise it. And that's not good. Um, it is not helping anybody because, as you said, China is an economic behemoth. They can wait this out um, for quite a while, and that is a big concern for everyone. And, and China has also developed Clearly, China has their 2050 policy. They've got a long-term strategy, and they are disciplined enough to stay on that strategy and not get deterred from that strategy. And I'm not sure people in this country, and I certainly am not sure the administration, fully appreciates that. China is going to be one of the biggest economic threats that this country has seen potentially ever if we are not careful and not play this strategically. And while we've been doing this, and this is another bone I have to pick with the administration, while we were doing that, we were kicking our friends in Europe in the shins and basically doing the same thing on a lesser scale and saying this is all about us, meaning us, the United United States, States, as opposed to us, our friends and allies, who have we have built this bond together since since the beginning of this country, and particularly after World War II. Can we survive this, Senator? Yeah. Th- th- this idea th- th- that the United States is coddling, well, kicking our friends, kicking our friends in the shin, um, sticking it to an economic behemoth like China that can that can go elsewhere, and in the in the meantime, diminishing America's influence around the world. Right. Can we survive that even if we get another president in either 2020 or 2024 who is back to the norm? Sure. No, I, I think that you certainly can survive it. We have, we've kind of gone through periods of history in our country where uh, things like this have happened. This is not the first kind of problem that we've had. It's not the first time that the United States has been kind of an isolationist. Um, you know, we we defeated uh, the League of Nations with Woodrow Wilson. And, you know, that was a, a real problem for us. It led to some other issues, but we survived and we became stronger. I think we will ultimately get stronger at some point. But we've also got to adapt. We've got to make sure we, where we are right now, other countries are going to be adapting. They also have their economies. They're going to protect themselves. They're not going to depend on us, and that's probably a good thing, to be honest with mm-hmm. you, that they're not going to be as dependent on the United States, but they're going to adapt, and we're going to have to adapt to that. The one thing that I think can be the easiest thing to get back, and that is to once again to assume the moral high ground and to be that moral leader of the world, which I am not sure right now we are seen as that at all, and I think we have to get back to there first and foremost then we can get get back to where we are working with our friends and allies to build this global economy the way it should be. Um, so as I mentioned before, uh, uh, a year ago tomorrow, you won your election, uh, the special election to fill the seat that was vacated by uh, then-Senator Jeff Sessions, who was appointed attorney general by President Trump. He is now gone from that position, but I'm not going to ask you about him. <laughs> I, I want you to, to just sort of go back in time and reminisce uh, a bit. Do you think you would have won if you didn't have such a flawed opponent as you had in Roy Moore? You know, it, it's, that's a very good question, but I want to break that down into two parts because your readers, and thanks to the Washington Post, saw flaws that nobody saw before. And so I more look at this as, a, as Roy Moore was a flawed candidate that became more flawed, if that's possible, okay? I actually think that we were going to win that election had the Post not broken the stories about hmm. those women. 
um, which I believed. It was a phenomenal reporting, uh, the kind of reporting I miss from America's media these days, if anyone is out there and cares and gives a damn about it. Um, it, it was amazing. Uh, but it also, in this age of social media and the world we're living in now, it became incredibly tribal, just like the Kavanaugh situation did. It became tribal. It ginned up a base. Uh, it got people out to vote that I think were not going to vote and got people out to vote. On both sides or on, on the side I, of I, Roy I Moore? I think more on Roy Moore's side. Mm-hmm. I think my, my voters were energized for a lot of reasons. And we probably saw some more get out. But we have been working for six, seven months, really getting that base of voters ready to go to the polls on December 12th. And so, yes, he was flawed. He became more flawed. The race tightened up because it became very tribal. Um, I don't think that that was the only reason, though, uh, that we won. I believe that um, I believe that anybody that the Republicans f- were going to field at that time in that moment was going to have enough flaws that we were going to be able to exploit those for the people of Alabama and to show that this is a this is why we need change uh, in this state. Would it have been a tougher race? with one or two of the other folks? Absolutely. Um, but we looked at that race from the very beginning back in May, and we saw a path regardless of who the nominee was. And we believed it then. I believe it now. Um, but who knows? The race ended it the way it is, and um, it was an incredibly exciting time. I, I will say this, Jonathan, and I hope you don't mind me uh, getting into a, something a little bit personal here. Um, but the architect of my race Uh, was my friend Giles Perkins Mm -hmm. and um, Giles was a great statistician great friend tough taskmaster I called him Yoda he was suffering from pancreatic cancer during our entire campaign and he passed away just 10 days before the anniversary of the election and that's tough on us all I was going to ask you, ask you about him, about, as you just pointed out, you called him your Yoda. Um, what was the biggest piece of advice he gave to you um, that you found the most invaluable, that you view as like that decision that, we, that he told me to make is the thing that was the linchpin? It, it's really, again, kind of two parts. Be authentic. Be who you are, Doug. I know you. I know what you believe. I know what you stand for. I know what your heart is. And that's what you need to tell the people of Alabama and stay in that lane. Don't let anybody distract you into getting into issues that divide us. Don't let anybody distract you with all of the issues that came up about more. Don't let anybody, don't let the president's tweets distract you. You talk about the things that are in your heart for the people of Alabama and the way that you do it as a trial lawyer. You've done it all your life to be authentic and to stay in your lane. That is the single most best advice that he gave me. And it is probably the single best reason or most significant reason that we won. Didn't he um, advise in some way or did he advise in some way Mike Espy's campaign over in Mississippi? He gave he gave for whatever advice he could. He gave advice to any number of folks Mm -hmm. that has called him uh, this year. But especially in the last month or so, tried to help uh, Mike's campaign. He had been involved in the primary race in the other election um, uh, for Roger Wicker's seat. He had gotten involved in that. Uh, His candidate lost in that race. And so he had got to learn Mississippi a little bit more. So he tried to advise Mike some. But by that time, when Mike got into the runoff toward the end of the campaign, his health was really beginning to decline. And and, and his advice was mainly by phone and by email. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I bring up Mike Espy because in the the a lot of people had a lot of hope for the Mississippi Senate race. They viewed your election in in Alabama as sort of a precursor to what could happen in Mississippi, and yet it didn't happen. 
Well, you know, here's the problem with, that Democrats have, okay? The problem that Democrats have is that they measure success only with a W or an, a W, okay? It's either you won it or you lost it. Mike Espy came within eight points of winning a United States Senate seat. This is an African-American in the state of Mississippi. Good grief. I, I mean, yeah. Good grief. I mean, no one before him in the last 20 years had come within 15 points, I think. If you look at the numbers, look at the, 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 the disparity between the numbers in the Senate races, the disparity between the numbers that President um, Trump got uh, over uh, Hillary Clinton, uh, that um, Mitt Romney and John McCain got over Barack Obama, and you just go back and back and back. It's all double digits, sometimes in the, in the 20s. Mike did an amazing thing. And I think one of the problems, especially for Democrats, is that we have played a short game from one race to the next. And we've never looked upon our success as, a, as the long ball. We, and, and we have got to do that in the South. We've got to see that in this election cycle, who would have dreamed just two years ago that a, a candidate like Ralph Gillum would have come so a- close? Yeah, Andrew Gillum in Andrew Florida, Gillum, yes. Uh, would have come so close in Florida. Stacey Abrams would have come so close in Georgia. Mike Espy would have come so close in Mississippi. Uh, uh, Beto O'Rourke, uh, even though he's not a candidate of color, he is an unabashed liberal progressive, came so close in Texas. Things are changing. We flipped house seats uh, in, um, in the South. We flipped uh, legislative seats uh, in the South. This is a long-term strategy. So I consider Mike Espy's race a huge success. The fact that he's not there is obviously disappointment for a lot of people. But let's build on the success that we've got. Because when that happens, now let me t- I'll give you a little something. Even though Alabama, our candidates in Alabama didn't do as well because they just could not get the traction that we, we built in December. But the one thing that happened in Alabama in this election, you had more people on both sides of the aisle talking about issues, the kitchen table issues that I talked about. They were talking about jobs. They were talking about the economy. They were talking about health care issues. And they weren't focusing on all those issues that have divided us so much. If we can continue that focus in the South on those issues, we're going to have some changes in the South, and the South is going to be the leader of changes in the country. Hi there. It's Martine again, host of The Post's new daily podcast, Post Reports. Here at The Washington Post, we experience the constant twists and turns of the news. Sorry, again. How long was it after we left here that... Seven minutes. <laughs> I told them, I'm like, they just asked me, and I'm like, no, it won't be a surprise if he gets fired. <laughs> Sometimes you get to the end of the day and it can feel like you've been blasted with news alerts and breaking updates. That's where our new podcast comes in. Every afternoon, Post Reports will be there. A mix of news, storytelling, and insights that make you think. Find out more at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports. Changes in the country. Okay, well, let's talk about let's talk about 2020. And this sparked because you mentioned how Beto O'Rourke, Congressman O'Rourke, who ran against Senator Ted Cruz in Texas for that Senate seat, he ran, as you said, as an unabashed progressive liberal. We're about to go into the 2020 campaign where there is this tension within the Democratic Party about whether the Democrats should go for a fighter. Should they go for should they go lean hard on the left? Should You know, a la Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren, should they go after the um, the voters they lost to President Trump, or should they just ig- ignore those voters and go for the base? Where, as we sit here right now, where do you think the party, the Democratic Party, should focus its attention? All right, let's break that down a little bit. First of all, I think everybody out there is a fighter in one sense of the word. The question is, how do you fight? Do you just do it by screaming? Do you do it by just trying to engage the president in a Twitter war? If that's the fight we're looking about, Democrats lose. I am absolutely convinced of that. Now, and let me say to all everybody listening to this, this is just one Doug Jones opinion. 
Okay. And I have a little bit, I come from a little bit different background and, and, it has, and I come from a, a background in which the Democratic Party has all but ignored my entire area of the country, okay, which is why there is very little bench in the South. They just ignored us and decided to go into those areas where they can have the most bang for the buck. And, 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 and it cost us the election, I think, in 2016. So. I think everybody's going to be a fighter for the things that we believe in. But at the same time, we also have to to recognize that there is just not enough way in a divided government the way we have that we can have our way all the time. We've got to have someone who is willing to look across the aisle and try to talk to people and have those dialogues to say, all right, how can we find the common ground to get some things done? Now, I, I am one. And it's just again, it's my opinion. That at the end of the day, um, at the end of the day, we've got to have candidates who can appeal to, to not only those in, on, on the East Coast and the West Coast, but the heartland of America, the people in the counties, the rural areas. That is the biggest issue what we're, we're facing now. It's, it's, not, it's not progressives. It's not liberals versus conservatives. It's rural versus urban. And Democrats have not done a good job of reaching those voters. They think that we have completely lost them because of whatever you want to call it, identity politics, whatever. They don't think that we uh, really are, are there for them when I believe our policies are there for them more than anybody else. And we've got to develop the kind of message and tone that will not just speak to those. I, I, people keep talking about we've got to talk to these people. We've got to speak to folks like that in rural America. And you do, but more importantly, you got to listen to them. you got to understand and know their, their, their hearts, their desires, their fears, because that's where we lose when somebody plays on those fears, whether it is in an immigration issue, taking their jobs, you name it. It is the fears that, that people get played on. I'm glad you brought that up because um, in his closing argument in the last, particularly the last two weeks of the midterm election, the president ran around the country playing on people's yes. fears of the caravan and the immigrant wave that's going to that's invading, invading right. the country. And then you fast forward to the runoff uh, election between Mike Espy and Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith. And she is revealed to be, you know, in Confederate uniforms and talking about public hangings and the segregation schools that she went to and sent her daughter to. President swoops down there and it's still the same closing argument um, that is to, in my opinion, based in racism and xenophobia. I understand what you're talking about in terms of identity politics that Democrats get get labeled with. But why isn't what the president did in the closing argument to the midterm elections and what he did for Cindy Hyde-Smith, why isn't that considered identity politics oh, in is. the worst form? No, no, no. I, I, I don't disagree with that. It, it is. But there, those numbers are greater. And the people, the identity that he has identified with, especially in those r- rural areas, those rural states, are there in greater numbers. He did that for a reason because those numbers were there. It was interesting with the caravan. Uh, you know, as we were walking up here, I was looking at all those analytics you guys have mm-hmm. here at the Post. What I would really like to see is all of the national media attention on the caravan leading up to the midterms and then the national attention of the media, not just the president, but the media after the midterms because it, it, it dropped. It was like the caravan evaporated. Disappeared. Yes. Oh, yeah. But, but it reappeared about two days before the Mississippi election, two or three days. And, and, and the president ginned that up. He went down there and that was the main and that was the issue. And, and it and allowed people, some people to just overlook any infirmity of his and hers or whatever in order to vote for him. It was a referendum on him. So then in 2020, it's going to be the ultimate referendum on him. So given what you just said, how do Democrats overcome a campaign of fear that has been a proven a proven winner. Well, I think you have at least to, in the Senate. I think you have to start now. 
I think you have to start anticipating that again. Everybody knew. I mean, you know, the president said back a year ago, immigration is going to be the issue. And it, but it was like we put our head under a blanket, you know, and said, well, not really, or we can't win that. Right. And so I think we have to continue to talk about to talk about it and, and to talk about it publicly and talk about the things that can work. You know, the fact of the matter is, and a lot of people, this gets lost on this because Democrats message are not are not that great. There is no one in the Democratic Party for for open borders. Everyone wants secure borders. They may not want some monstrosity of a concrete wall, which even the Border Patrol people say would be the least effective way to, to stop things. But no one wants. There was, you know, we had the, the nominee for ICE, Mr. Vitello, mm-hmm. for Homeland Security about, well, it's been about three or four weeks now. The first question I asked him, because he's got this long history. This was right after the midterms, literally the Thursday after. He's got this long history of working with the Customs Border Patrol. And I said, sir, just in your experience, have you ever heard one public official, Democrat or Republican, say, look, sir, I'm for open borders? Have, no, I have not. Have you ever heard them even imply they're for open borders? No, I have not. Well, the problem is we've let folks control that narrative. And Democrats have been – and I, I can't fault them because it's a difficult narrative – to give when people are playing on fears. But we've got to be able to tell people that, look, we're not for open borders. We've got to figure out ways to to not seal the borders, but to make sure that our borders are secure, while at the same time being the United States of America and providing a, 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 a place where people who are suffering, who are suffering at the hands of violence and dictatorships and everything else, uh, can seek some kind of refuge. But our our borders aren't wide open. I mean, if you listen no. to the president, you'd think that the borders are wide open. Like, no, they're you, not. You've left the, you've left your front door open, and you've gone to work, and oh my God, all my it, stuff's gone. Yeah. That's not the case. No, it's not. But 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 that's part of the problem. The counter message has not been, I don't think, as good. Um, and 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 you know, Democrats tried to help fashion something last year uh, to give more border security that would increase border patrol, increase technology, increase immigration judges. Part of this is the asylum process, you know, and one of the things we've got now, there's a bill, uh, a bill pending. It's kind of the Marshall Plan for Central America. You know, the one of the things, border security is only a part of this problem, Jonathan. As long as we are the United States of America, as long as we're the land of the free and the home of the brave, people are going to want to come here. Right. And they're not going to want to go stand in line and go through the procedures to come here. They want to try to get here by any means possible. And we got to recognize that. But one thing that we're not doing is I don't think we're providing the strategic way to help some of these Central American countries pull themselves up out of poverty, pull themselves up, get rid of the gang violence, get rid of the corruption. That, you know, we did and that. And help, help their economies so that they create jobs so that people can stay. And they wouldn't want to stay. These folks don't want to leave their home country. They just have to almost, so many of them. And so I think there's a balance that you can do that. It, I, I, that bill is pending. We call it the, the Marshall Plan, literally, for Central America. And I think there's a strategic way to do that and to help things to try to decrease the number of people who, want to, to, who are going to try to just you know, come through the borders uh, illegally. All right. I, I wasn't being rude um, checking my phone while you were you were speaking, Senator. But this being Trump's America, you got to check to make sure. sure there's been no news when it comes to special counsel Robert Mueller. In the last 30 seconds. Right. Yes. And, and, and so far, so far, nothing. But we are anticipating at the t- at, at the time that we are recording this, a whole lot of news uh, uh, about to break. Just given what you know right now, and you are a former uh, U.S. attorney, uh, you are a lawyer, given everything that you have seen, where where do you think Robert Mueller is going? Or is he actually showing us exactly where he's going by the the indictments that he's laid out so far? I, I think there's some some a, a lot of that. Um, you know, when this thing first started, I, I've known Robert Mueller a long time. 
I don't think there's a finer uh, prosecutor uh, and professional in, that we've ever that we've had in the the government in a long time, and he's incredibly efficient. Uh, he has an in- incredible team, and he is building methodically a case that is going to go somewhere. I can't tell you who it's going to be or where it's going to be. But it's going uh, somewhere. There are it, things are going in directions that is we've not seen the last of uh, problems for for folks. And and what's what's really fascinating to me is that the administration's response two things. This is a witch hunt, and they're all liars. Right. Well, first of all. This investigation has produced over 33 people or co- companies that have been indicted. M- so many of them have pled guilty. In other words, that means they stood in front of a United States district judge, swore, you know, under oath, I committed this crime. Okay? That's number one. That's no witch hunt. Okay? As somebody said, maybe on Saturday Night Live or something, if that's the case, there's a lot of witches out there. Okay? <laughs> So that's number one. This has never been a witch hunt. Uh, There's some very serious stuff, not just pertaining to the the so-called collusion, but also just the uh, Russian hacking and those things in and of themselves is incredibly significant. The other thing is about the liars. It has shown, I mean, people I think now are beginning to say, well, wait a minute. This president is basically saying everyone that surrounded him was a liar. Everyone that is surrounding him is only out for themselves. Well, maybe that's true. We know that they have been accused of lying to protect this president. And so there is a culture that you're seeing uh, evolve that was around the, uh, uh, the Trump business organization that I don't think is a pretty picture. Mm-hmm. Now, whether it, how far it goes it remains to be seen. As a prosecutor, are you, are you just shocked by the amount of lying? The idea that Paul Manafort, yes. after pleading guilty, just keeps getting caught all of them. doing committing more crimes. I, I have I have I have never seen in my recollection, I have never seen more false statements, perjury type indictments coming out of any investigation than I have out of this, which, and, and, and let me, let me say this. It is not unusual when you, when you have someone that is, uh, that you've got the goods on in, on much bigger issues, fraud, tax, you name it, that as part of an agreement, you let someone plead guilty to, um, false statements, perjury, you know, lying, so to speak. that. That part of this plea bargain process is very common. What, I, what is amazing to me is that so many people thought that they could go in and pull the wool over Robert Mueller's eyes. <laughs> My God, no one ever found out. They, they didn't do the least bit of uh, background on Robert Mueller to know. That was not going to happen. And, they, and I, I've been so surprised because any lawyer that's ever dealt with these, they know that when you run a client in there, when you've talked to a client and they go agree to, to, to give a statement, that the people sitting on that under the other side of the table know a hell of a lot more about what they're talking about than your client who lived through it. That is par for the course. I, on all but the very beginning of an investigation. And so these folks, especially in the last couple of years, I mean, they, they, were, they were going in with a, with a deck stacked against them. And all they had to do was just lay it out. They should have never gone in if they weren't going to lay it out truthfully and accurately. I mean, a lot of people on television are, and I can't remember who, I can't give the correct attribution who coined this, but people are calling this dumb Watergate. (laughs) Uh, Because, look, I've watched enough Law and Order, Law and Order, SVU. uh, I haven't gotten into the CSI series, but I've watched enough crime stories and dramas to know that when the feds come calling, like you can't hide from them. No, look, you got to remember when any 
grand jury, when any special counsel, whether or, or not a special counsel, the U.S. attorney's office in any one of the uh, U.S. attorney's offices around the country, when they start these kind of investigations, you know, the first thing they do is they subpoena records. They get all the records. They get the bank records. They follow the money. They have got brilliant people who can go follow every dime and put it on a graph and a chart. And it will. And so when when they finally sit down to interview, they're not interviewing people in a vacuum. They know a hell of a lot. I mean, a hell of a lot. And the, they, they know so much that the person that's being interviewed forgot. And they think that they can come in and they can just wow them. And again, but that goes back, I think, what people really need to start looking about. That seems to be the culture mm-hmm. that existed around Donald Trump at the time. And that's incredibly unfortunate um, because things could have moved even quicker. But it just has this ability that the culture was, well, if we just go in and, and say what we say, we're who we are. And they'll just go, oh, well, that clears that up. Thank you very much. Mm-mm. Not right. Bob Mueller. Or claiming executive privilege and all, and all of that stuff. So um, what would be a red line for you? Because I do think we are, we are at a, a critical moment here. Jonathan, let me stop you. I think we've had a bad experience talking about red lines. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's maybe rephrase that just a okay. little bit in so, terms of. <laughs> okay. So here, so here we are at a point where we could see the president of the United States pardon some people mm-hmm. like Manafort, Roger Stone, or he could fire the special counsel, Robert Mueller, or he could fire Rod Rosenstein, who should have been the acting attorney general, but was passed over right. for the previous attorney general's chief of staff. Um, at what point, what could happen where you as a United States senator and as a former prosec- federal prosecutor, your head will explode and you will demand action? I, I think any one of those things uh, would trigger a, a very um, serious response from both the House and the Senate. Unfortunately, you know, the Senate is not going to be able to control the subpoenas uh, like the folks in the House can. But I think any one of those, uh, anything like that would uh, prompt a very, very significant backlash among both Democrats and Republicans. Really Republicans? Uh, well, so, enough. Mm-hmm. Enough. I mean, there are some obviously not. Um, it took a while even in Watergate for folks to come around. OK, but. I think it would it would prompt a very serious backlash. And again, it, it may depend on who it is. Um, but, you know, I, I want to mention something about pardons. Pardons doesn't excuse somebody. It doesn't mean that things come to a halt and that Paul Manafort or Roger Stone or anybody else can come and say, oh, we're off the hook now. Just go fly a kite. You know, flick a, you know, give them a one finger salute and go home. They can still be interviewed. They can still be called to a grand jury. They can be compelled to testify. And they, the thing is, they would no longer have a Fifth Amendment privilege. Right. They could be compelled to testify and they would have to testify. They could be held in contempt, go to prison if they don't. And if they testify or when they testify, they still have to say, tell the truth or be subject to perjury or false statement, just like we're seeing. That's, you know, everyone keeps talking about the messages that Trump may be sending about pardons and whatever. Well, let me tell you something. Bob Mueller's sending one too. And he's telling all these people, hey, look, guys, you get a pardon, don't think you're off the hook. Let me tell you about a 1,001 violation, false statement. Let me tell you about perjury, okay? And that's why everybody you see... Everybody that's falling is going down. So there is still a lot of there's still a lot of ammunition in a prosecutor's uh, arsenal, uh, even if there are pardons that come down. Mm. I got to end this interview uh, with a ice cream. Right. <laughs> we could go back We're and have, go some, back to have, have some, some ice, cream. Some ice cream. But I have to ask you about your son, Carson, because yes. um, at your your swearing in. Um, he was caught on camera giving side eyes to Vice President Pence. And, you know, he posted on his Instagram page the photo that captured that moment 
which when I just checked it about an hour ago, it has more than 22,700 likes. Yes. Did you know he did that? Yes. Um, <laughs> I, I often say I love my son. He has <laughs> certainly become a legend in his own mind. And, uh, you know, that was one of maybe 100,000 photos that were taken that right. day. And somebody found that one photo. Um, it was pretty funny, I think, for sure. Um, you know, but I'm proud of him. I'm proud of my whole family. We, we, uh, that was a, that was a, a family decision to go through that. And we understood and knew, uh, that, that, uh, certain things about our family could become an issue in the campaign. Fortunately, it did not. Mm-hmm. And, um, so we're going forward and everybody is all in for 2020. Senator Doug Jones, Democrat of Alabama, and former U.S. Attorney for the Northern District of Alabama. Thank you very much for being on the podcast. Hey, it's my pleasure. Anytime. Thank Let's you. Get some ice cream. You got it. Thanks for listening to Cape Up. Tune in every Tuesday. You can find us on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. And how about doing me a huge favor? Subscribe, rate, and review us. I'm Jonathan Capehart of The Washington Post. You can find me on Twitter at CapehartJ. The Washington Post's newest podcast, Post Reports, is doing something different. Every afternoon, we'll bring you stories about the state of the country. The number of false and misleading claims he made on the campaign trail the last few weeks is breathtaking. And the world... And I think that that is where climate change is starting to come in. It's causing fires to move more rapidly, to spread more rapidly, and also to burn hotter. The stories behind the stories and how we come to know the things we know. That's the sound of Antarctic snow. Healthy snow. Not healthy snow. Stories that capture the reality of the world inside and outside of Washington with nuance and unflinching honesty. That's Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers, and I can't wait to share this new podcast with you. Get it now at WashingtonPost.com slash Post Reports or wherever you get your podcasts.